welcome everybody. I'm Wouter uh, Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, today's speaker, Tobias uh, Adrian. Uh, before I do that, I'd like to make a couple of announcements. So please turn off your, uh, your mobile phone. Um, I always ask that, but um, it still doesn't always uh, work as it uh, should. For those of you who do want to use Twitter, the hashtag is LSEEconomics, which is there. Um, and then you'd like to be reported. So if everything goes well, the podcast will be made available on the website of LSEEconomics. Uh, um, so the remarkable thing about you know, today's speaker, Dr. Adrian, is that he has done, as, as well as a lot of academics, in terms of teaching at very prestigious universities, and publishing in uh, top journals, and he has combined that with uh, you know, research experience in politics. It always impresses me because I've been uh, a bit more than one side of kind of kind of person. So we're very happy that uh, right, we can give you that kind of uh, speaker today. So right now he is a financial counselor and director of the monetary and capital <coughs> market department at the International Monetary Fund. And before that, he was vice president, senior vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank. And he's going to talk about the uh, financial stability report of the IMF. And he probably will say the same, but I would recommend you to actually read that. Because it's just remarkable how readable it is. Right, so it's like the first chapter, and they talk about all the things that are going on in the world regarding financial stability, but there's like lots of data there and lots of different stories. So I actually often uh, use a lot of the pictures in the story there. And then in the other chapters, they usually go in depth and, and then focus on topics which are really topical. So it's, 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 where it's available for free on the web, right? Beautiful color PDF, as well. so I definitely recommend it. But anyway, well, uh, join me in welcoming Okay, so good morning or good afternoon, good, good, good noon. Uh, I'm very happy to be, to be here. Uh, I was a student at uh, London School of Economics some 20 years ago. Uh, so I did uh, a master in econometrics and mathematical economics at the time. And then I went off to, to do a PhD uh, in the US at, at MIT. Uh, but um, being at LSE was incredibly inspiring. And uh, much of what I've learned here has, has stayed with me over the years. And uh, actually, uh, quite a lot of the topics that I'm going to talk about today are going to resonate uh, themes that I was thinking about when I was a student here. And uh, right here in this library, I, I would, you know, go through the textbooks. And uh, sometimes it has taken me, you know, quite a long time to actually figure out how it all comes together. And I, I sort of keep working on that. LSE's motto, of course, is to know the causes of things. And uh, that's a motto that is shared not just uh, by academic institutions, but also by policy institutions such as the International Monetary Fund. Where I, where I started to work uh, in January. Uh, of course, the current, uh, your current leader at, the, at LSE is a former uh, IMF uh, deputy managing director. Uh, Minush was, was at the IMF for a number of years. So there's an especially close connection between those two uh, institutions. 
So what I'm going to do today is to talk about the outlook for global financial stability. So as Wouter has, has pointed out, uh, the Global Financial Stability Report was published uh, two weeks ago. So that's a kind of assessment of financial markets, financial institutions, and macro-financial linkages that is uh, prepared twice a year by the, by the IMF. And if you sort of want to get into what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening in terms of regulatory policies, uh, but also what's happening in terms of monetary policy, this is a very good report to get a quick overview. And we also have lots of uh, analytical topics in there, and I'm going to talk about that. So I will not just talk about the current assessment of global financial stability, I will also try to give you a kind of a framework for global financial stability. So the talk will become more and more academic as we go along. So it's going to connect actually pretty closely uh, to those of you in the audience who are taking uh, sort of like advanced macro classes or something like that, uh, where there are macro financial linkages. So our current outlook for global financial stability is basically that in the short term, things are improving. So the, the outlook for economic growth is improving. Um, financial markets are buoyant, but in the medium term, we worry about the buildup of risks. And I will be very precise about that in a moment. Um, and so this buildup of risk, we will quantify very so like rigorously in a concept that we call growth at risk. And so the growth at risk uh, will be our metric for financial stability, and that will link to microfinancial modeling. So in terms of an outline, I will start off with the GFSRs uh, or with the IMF's overall financial stability assessment, which is the, the chapter one of the GFSR. Then I will talk about this financial stability metric, growth at risk. Uh, and then I will talk a little bit about how to strengthen the analytical framework of financial stability to make it into you know, a really rigorous science. Uh, and I think uh, many people in the room here, I hope, will contribute to that effort uh, in the future. So let me start with the global financial stability assessment. So this is an overview of our short-term assessment of financial stability risks. Um, so this is a, a spider chart that shows you some risks and some conditions, sort of like monetary and financial conditions here are in the, in the lower half and risks are in the upper half. So our assessment is that macroeconomic risks are getting smaller. Basically, globally, the macroeconomy is improving. Uh, grow, global growth is projected to be 3.6% for 2017, 3.7% for 2018, which is quite a bit higher than last year when growth was globally 3.2%. And um, of course, in terms of uh, credit risks, so the core financial institutions are much stronger. So the global banks have added massive amounts of capital, right? Regulations have been tightened since the global financial crisis so that, um, uh, you know, the global banks have delevered quite, uh, quite substantially. They've added around a trillion of capital uh, since 2009. And uh, the liquidity is also better in, in, in these global banks. However, the credit risks or like the stability in the banking system is somewhat offset by mountain risks in the market-based financial system. And so I'm going to get into more, into more depth in that as well. So 
our overall assessment of, of credit risk is that it's unchanged since uh, six months ago, but it's much lower since then, than in the last financial crisis, for example. And then market and liquidity risks are also unchanged because on the one hand, financial conditions are, 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 are very good, but on the other hand, there are market risks that are building up. Those are mainly medium-term risks, not so much short-term risks. And then in terms of financial conditions, the main thing here is that risk appetite continues to boom. So risk appetite is getting higher and higher. So we are really sort of like in the boom phase of the financial cycle. And you know, there is this, this perennial question of how long is that going to last. Uh, monetary conditions continue to be accommodative. And in terms of emerging markets, uh, they are, you know, emerging market funding, premia are compressed, and there are lots of flows uh, going into emerging markets. I will say a little bit more about that as well in a moment. Now, uh, we, are worried, we are worried to some extent, and let me give you five vulnerabilities. And so these are really vulnerabilities that are medium-term vulnerabilities. So they are medium-term risks to financial stability. So the first vulnerability is about reaching for yield. So reaching for yield is sort of like the phenomenon that investors are trying to meet nominal return targets, but in an environment where, where yields keep compressing, they have to go out of their natural habitat and have to go into so like new asset classes and new types of, uh, of financial products uh, that they might not know very well. So to illustrate the reaching for yield, here we pulled the whole global investment grade fixed income universe. Okay, so these are all outstanding um, investment grade uh, fixed in income securities. And we sort of like show you the distribution of yields, uh, yields to maturity, of the, all of these fixed income instruments. And so uh, the blue line here is for 2007. So we, we do a sort of arbitrary cutoff at 4%, I mean, just to fix ideas. So when you do an cutoff at 4% in 2007, there were 80% of the universe of fixed income securities yielded more than 4%. So that was more than $16 trillion. Today, in 2017, only $2 trillion, or less than 5%, of fixed income assets yield more than 4%, okay? And so 80% of assets today are yielding something between zero to, you know, zero, one to 3%. So you can see that the mean is somewhere around like 2.5% or something like that. And so that, of course, is a problem for institutions such as insurance companies and pension funds who often have promised their investors to reach a certain return target, right? So they have nominal return targets, right? If you have a life insurance product or if you have a pension, often you were promised something up here, but now it's down here and now the insurance companies have to come up with a yield and generate some yield. And so what's happening is this sort of, sort of like global reaching for yields where investors such as insurance companies, pension funds, but also mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera, are going into riskier and riskier asset classes in order to capture some yield. But of course, in the process of that, you know, there's demand and supply, and equilibrium, the equilibrium price of risk is getting more and more compressed. So here we show sort of like a market risk premium that is estimated from a, from a simple 
um, uh, credit uh, spread model, and you can see that you know the credit risk premium, uh, the risk, the market risk premium embedded in credit spreads is sort of like getting very, very compressed. It was a little bit more compressed even in 2007, but the direction of travel is clear. It might well be that in a year or two we might be at a level of compression that is as much as, as what we had 10 years ago. And then when we look at credit quality, so there are many metrics of credit quality. What we are looking at here is, is the fraction of investment grade bonds that are issued just one notch above investment grade. Okay? So it's sort of like the worst investment grade possible. And so these are bonds that are going to be very, very fragile if the negative shock hits, right? Because you're just above investment grade. Once you go from, so you're just above high yield. So once you're downgraded from investment grade to high yield, the investor base becomes very different because many institutions have sort of like limits on how much they can invest into investment grade as opposed to high yield. And so this fraction of bonds that are issued uh, uh, just above high yield is, is now up to 50%. Okay, so half of the investment grade bonds are just above high yield. So that's a deterioration of underwriting standards in some sense. And um, of course, uh, you know, the other, you know, the, the second sort of like vulnerability that I want to point out is what we call the volatility paradox. Um, so the volatility paradox is that Today, when you look at market volatility, it's extremely low, okay? And so you can look across asset classes in equities, in credit, in, in interest rates, in commodities, either realized or implied volatility, option implied volatility or realized volatility is extremely low, it's com extremely compressed across asset classes. At the same time, you know, risk premium are very compressed. Of course, there's a tight relationship between volatility and risk premium. So risk premium are very compressed in government bond markets, corporate bond markets, housing markets, and equity markets. So this, this heat chart sort of tells you, like, we are red everywhere. The last time we were red everywhere where was, you know, sort of like back in 2006. Now, of course, you know, the environment today is quite different from 2006, and I will talk about that more. But still, you know, there are lots of red flags out there. And so what is that doing? So the fact that volatility is very low, spreads are very compressed, and interest rates are very low. Basically, if you feed that into a model of capital, into a capital structure model, right? So here we, for example, we, we use Moody's KMV model, right? So KMV model is sort of like the Merton model, commercialized, right? So it's a capital structure model for the financing uh, of, uh, of corporates. And so, you know, when you think about capital structure theory, of course, when volatility is low and when interest rates are low, the model will tell you you can lever up, right? Because the implied probability of default is going to be very low. And indeed, here we are pulling literally the implied, the probability of default from 40,000 corporates worldwide from Moody's KMV model. And what you see is that this implied default probability is extremely low. It was even lower just before the last crisis, right? And so the problem, so the problem with, with this kind of approach, and that's literally the model that you know, everybody uses, the problem with that is that it's really based on the contemporaneous view of volatility. 
And the volatility paradox is that it's in those times of low volatility that forward-looking risk is building up. It's today in the boom that the next crisis is breeding, right? And so the model tells you, oh, you should lever up, and that's exactly what is happening. So for example, here we just plot the credit gap. So that's the ratio of credit to GDP detrended by a Hodrick Prescott filter. So that's basically telling you that you know, the credit grab, you know, credit keeps growing. As a matter of fact, when we look at non-financial sector credit across G20 economies, so these are the, the 20 largest economies in the world, household credit keeps going up, non-financial corporate leverage keeps going up, and the, the general government uh, leverage keeps going up. So leverage is rising everywhere. And leverage today is higher than it was before the global financial crisis. Now you could say, well, okay, leverage is going up, but interest rates are very low, so perhaps your debt service is actually not that high. And that actually turns out to be a fallacy. So when here we're plotting um, the debt to GDP uh, for the G20 countries, against the debt service ratio. So this, is, so this is basically the stock measure versus the flow measure, right? This is what you have to pay as a fraction of GDP. This is the stock of debt as a fraction of GDP. And both debt service ratio and debt to GDP are normalized by the 20-year average of their own values. So in some sense, you can see this is sort of like the delta relative to your 20-year average. If you're right at zero, you're right on the 20-year average. So you can see that most countries are well above the 20-year average. Most countries have increased uh, both leverage and debt service, uh, and, and this is very proportionate. So levering up means your debt service ratio also goes up. You know, there are two outliers, there's Japan and Germany, there were actually uh, debt service ratios as lower compared to the last 20 years, but for all these other countries, you know, things are getting uh, you know, you, there's more and more leverage. And that, of course, that makes the system fragile going forward, right? I mean, uh, the whole uh, system is levering up. And, uh, you know, when you look at emerging markets now, so, uh, you know, you see the same phenomenon. So the risk premium for emerging markets are getting compressed as well. There's a huge reaching for yield because investors are not, no longer getting the kind of yield that they're used to in investment-grade bonds. So they're moving, say, into emerging markets. And that, in equilibrium, of course, leads to compression of spreads in emerging markets. Those are not quite as historical highs into emerging markets, but they are clearly increasing. So there was a slowdown of these flows in 2015. You, you remember oil prices uh, collapsed at that point, and there was sort of like a risk-off moment. Uh, but uh, things are coming back, and you know we would expect that these flows are, you know, at the moment they're probably reaching 300 billion this year, and they might well uh, go further up next year. And so, as a result, when you look at the leverage, total corporate sector leverage in emerging markets, that has been trending up steadily over the past 10 years. It has dipped a little bit uh, since 2015, but this is, you know, expected to go back up. And there are a number of countries that have a very high corporate sector leverage. So, um, you know, where that leaves us is basically a global financial system where leverage is going up in the advanced economies, the G20 countries, in emerging markets. 
And then there's one particular country that is particularly important, which is China. So China, of course, is uh, now the second largest economy in the world. And it's the economy that uh, contributes the most to growth, right? Because growth is high and size is, is large. So in terms of growth contribution, China is the largest economy. So it matters a great deal for global growth. And so what has happened in China, I'm not showing you the charts here. We have done this many times in previous uh, global financial stability reports. Basically, over the past decade, since the global financial crisis, China has grown continuously, but this growth has relied on a constant, uh, gr even faster growth of credit. So the ratio of credit to GDP went from 100% to nearly 250% in less than 10 years. Okay? So now, a level of 250% of credit to GDP is very high in comparison to other countries, and the run-up of credit has been very fast. When you look historically at this kind of level of credit to GDP and this fast run-up in credit to GDP, historically, just looking at historical data across countries over 100 years, you know, this is very dangerous, right? So this fast run-up and the high level both signal, you know, big downside risks to GDP growth going forward. And indeed, the authorities have, are, are on board with that. They, they, they have heard, uh, you know, that, that message, and they have started to crack down on credit growth. So they have done lots of regulatory measures this year, and they have tightened monetary policy, uh, such that uh, unsecured borrowing in the interbank market is, getting, is, is, is contracting and the on-balance shadow credit creation is, is, is contracting as well. So, you know, <clears throat> so, total, so I told you that total credit to GDP is 250%. Financial sector debt, actually, so this is non-financial sector credit. Financial sector debt is actually 400% of, of GDP, right? Because there's lots of intra-financial uh, sector credit. And um, something like 70 to 80% of that credit is actually shadow credit. And so, so the shadow credit is also getting slowed down. Now, one of, of the implications is that total credit growth keeps going down. And then the question is, what is going to be the impact of, on, on growth? Because there's, of course, some trade-off in between you know, credit growth and, and GDP growth. So it's, if you slow down credit growth in order to have more stability, that might have an impact on, on GDP growth at some point. So this brings me to sort of like the, the punchline of the whole report. So the punchline of the report is the question, you know, is growth at risk? Is growth at risk? And so you can think of growth at risk, and I'm going to go into much more detail in the second part of, of my presentation here. So you can imagine that you sort of like estimate conditional densities of GDP growth, right? So, you know, we will, I will talk about one particular way to do that. There are many sort of like, you know, methods to doing that. And you can then ask conditional on different indicators, what is your conditional GDP growth? So here, for example, the yellow line is just conditioning on economic variables. The blue line is conditioning on economic variables as well as financial asset prices. So at the moment, we're in the boom. So when we're in the boom, financial asset prices you know, don't have that much information. 
Once asset prices deteriorate, that has a lot of information for downside risk to GDP growth. At the moment, what we're seeing is that the red line, which is also conditioning on leverage, okay, so this is conditioning on both leverage and asset prices. So the red line implies a lot more downside risk to GDP growth. This is at the one year ahead level, okay? And so what I want to do next, right, is to basically ask, you know, what is sort of, how can we think about financial stability in terms of this kind of like, you know, conditional density of GDP growth in the future, conditional of, on financial vulnerability. Um, before going there, let me, let me just say that we also have an analytical chapter in the, we have two analytical chapters in the GFSR, one of which is on household debt. And so when we look at household debt, we, we, we basically run these like panel regressions. So we forecast future GDP growth as a function of household debt and all kinds of economic uh, variables as controls. And what we find is that, you know, when household debt increases sharply in the short run, this signals higher growth. But in the medium to long term, in the medium term, that signals downside risks to growth, right? Because leverage is boosting growth in the short term, but it can be detrimental to growth in the medium term. When we interact that with metrics of sort of like the stance of regulation, the quality of supervision, and the depth of financial markets, we actually see that those that are most affected, so this, the, the difference between the short and the medium term goes away for those countries that, are, that have the highest efficiency in terms of regulation, the deepest capital markets. So there is not always a trade-off. If you have good institutional setups, you don't have this trade-off between short-term and medium-term impacts of household uh, leverage on growth. Furthermore, macroprudential policies are quite effective at curbing the growth rate uh, of, of household debt. And this is particularly true in emerging markets. So if you, if you use macroprudential measures, uh, this can mitigate the growth of, uh, of household uh, debt and can mitigate this negative impact in the medium term of household debt growth uh, on, on overall economic growth. Um, so so to, end the, to end this first section of the overview, let me just say that uh, in terms of policies, the current stance of monetary policy is still accommodative in the major economies, okay? So basically, when you look at the US, UK, Japan, and the Euro area, except for the UK, um, inflation is below target in the major economies. In the UK, it has come up, and we, we can talk about that there, you know, you, you all know what the, what the story there is. In the US, Japan, and the Euro area, despite many, many years of accommodative monetary policy, core inflation remains below target. In Japan, it's, a, it's around 0.5. In the US and the Euro area, it's around you know, 1.5, 1.7, or something like that. They all have a 2% target. So as a result, um, monetary policy remains accommodative, and this is priced into short rates. So these are the forward curves for, uh, for these different countries. You see that 
There's a little bit of a normalization that is priced in in the US, but it's flattening out very quickly, and it's flattening out somewhere below two, actually. In the UK, there's a little bit of tightening priced in, but it's also very shallow. In the euro area, there's something priced in, but you know this comes from negative uh, territory, and there's a slight, you know, there's a very slight increase in policy rates. So basically, the market is pricing in, you know, some tightening, some at a very gradual pace, and oftentimes quite far out in the future. Furthermore, there are, of course, balance sheet policies, and you might have followed what happened with the ECB yesterday. You know, the ECB is essentially continuing to purchase at a lower rate, but at a longer time horizon. The U.S. has started to, 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 uh, to reduce the reinvestments of its maturing portfolio. So there's an expectation that there's a little bit of a rundown. But this is basically offset when you, when you stack the five major uh, central banks on top of each other. This is offset by the further increase in the euro area and in Japan. So there's a little bit of change in the, in the uh, global balance sheet policies, but not that much. And so basically what that tells you is that monetary policy remains accommodative. So let me put that a little bit into sort of like New Keynesian uh, monetary policy language, right? So what we see right now is that, say, in the US, in Japan, and say, in Germany, so let's just pick Germany out of the euro area, the unemployment rate is very close to what one would estimate at the natural, as the natural rate. So you're basically at, at at Nairo, right, at the non-inflation uh, accelerating rate of unemployment, and or, or you know something that one could call something like full employment, um, and so you have you know you're you're very close to there, but inflation remains below target, so that means that um, the the natural rate of interest that is roughly neutral. Is, is not that far away, right? So, um, you know, interest rates, say, in the U.S. are close to 2%. You know, they, the U.S. might stop. The market is expecting that they're going to stop at 2%. Let's say they stop at 2% when inflation is 2%. So the real rate at that point is going to be zero. And this is going to be the neutral stance. In Japan, you know, at the moment, you basically have full employment. The unemployment rate is about 2.5%. Uh, core inflation is like 0.5 or something like that, and um, and interest rates are zero. So that also means that you know the neutral real rate is around zero. And say if you just pick out Germany uh, out of the eurozone, there as well unemployment is close to full employment and or the non-accelerating rate of of unemployment. And um, you know you have a little bit more accommodation, but probably the neutral rate is also quite a bit lower. So that means that it might well be that monetary policy will not go back to sort of like these interest rates of four, between four and five percent that we had seen historically as the neutral rate, but rather that we're going to be somewhere between two and three percent. Or put differently, that sort of like the real rate that is neutral is no longer two percent, but it's zero, at least for some time. I mean, that might, of course, change in a couple of years, but at the moment, that is sort of like what what the market is pricing in. And the problem of that, of course, is that that means that vulnerabilities might continue to, to rise, right? Because interest rates are very low, volatility is very low, so leverage might continue to rise. And then the question is, 
to what extent is growth at risk going forward? And so next I want to talk a little bit more about a conceptual framework of financial stability that, you know, that is tied closely into some like macro-financial modeling, um, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of the kind of, you know, academic work that is done uh, in, in the macro-financial macro area. So, so the kind of overview of financial stability that I showed you is sort of like a typical financial stability assessment that is done at many central banks. So the Bank of England, the ECB, um, not the Federal Reserve, but like there's some other, um, there's the Office of Financial Research in the US. They all publish uh, financial stability reports. And they're sort of like telling you something about leverage, the market price of risk, and maturity transformation. So different types of economic frictions that might give rise to financial stability problems. But, um, you know, there's always this question, so, so what, what exactly do all these indicators mean for financial stability? How can you translate all these different indicators into one metric for financial stability? So let me start by giving you uh, a definition of uh, financial stability. Um, and I actually want to give you two different versions of definitions of financial stability. So the first definition of financial stability is the traditional one, which is that financial stability means the absence of systemic risk, where systemic risk is the risk that the financial sector is unable to intermediate credit. Okay? So, so it's about the capacity of the intermediation capacity of the financial sector. So financial stability means that the financial sector can intermediate you know, without problem. So a real systemic event was visible in the fall of 2008 when major financial institutions became distressed and there was a question whether it, the intermediation capacity of the financial system would, would, be, would be impaired and arguably to some extent uh, the intermediation capacity was damaged. So these are sort of like very, very discrete, nonlinear events that uh, go hand in hand with widespread defaults in the financial sector. That is sort of like the traditional metric of financial stability. Now, I told you earlier that, of course, the banking system is a lot better capitalized, right? And so it becomes less and less likely that we will see this type of sharp uh, disruption in the intermediation capacity of the banking system, the core of the financial system. What we might see is what I would call a second definition of financial stability, which is much more related to the cyclical variation in the buildup of vulnerabilities, and it's closely linked to, to the notion of the financial cycle and the pro-cyclicality in the behavior of financial institutions. So pro-cyclicality is to some extent related to risk management frictions and extrapolative uh, expectations. So the risk management friction is that in good times, volatility is low, like today. Today we are in the good times. Volatility is very low, market volatility is very low. So risk management systems tell you that you can take on a lot of leverage, right? And so any market participant will tell that to you today. It's sort of like that's how risk management systems are built. They, they're built on 
either backward looking volatility or contemporaneous volatility. And then, of course, in the good times, you can lever up more. This is pushing up asset prices, but it makes the system fragile. So when a bad shock hits, you're forced to delever because you have this high leverage. You're selling assets. This is pushing up volatility, which is tightening your constraints. So you have a feedback loop, an amplification mechanism. And <clears throat> what is what is you know a second mechanism, economic mechanism that is that is amplifying the cyclical behavior in the financial cycle in some sense, is the tendency of many analysts and market participants to have extrapolative expectations. So this is very very well documented in the literature. Which is basically, when you have seen a run-up in asset prices, your expectation is that this is going to last, right? And of course, in any asset pricing theory, you would expect exactly the opposite, right? In asset pricing theory, you would say that risk premia are counter-cyclical, right? In the boom, you expect that uh, you have very little further way to go, and you would expect that eventually asset prices are going to go down. But of course, people don't behave uh, the way in which uh, we write down uh, you know, forward-looking models. And so these extrapolative expectations are an additional way to amplify the financial cycle. If you put that into a model, you get more amplification as well. And so basically, the, the, kind, of, the kind of financial stability risk that I envision for the next couple of years is not necessarily a return to 2008 but rather is a sharp deterioration in financial conditions, right? So we might not see a widespread distress, systemic distress of the major banks, but we might see sharp swings in asset prices that do not necessarily lead to, to any defaults, but it will have significant impact on macroeconomic activity because spreads are widening, flows are reverting, and uh, it, it's going to be difficult for borrowers to roll over their funding. So, put differently, there can still be, even if, we're, if, we, even if the next crisis might not be the 2008 type event, it might still have an, a substantial impact on uh, output as measured by GDP. So, in terms of, of the literature, the sort of traditional way of thinking about these issues is, um, is to think about external finance premiums, right? This is like the Bananka Gertler, Kiyotaki Moore kind of thing, where there are amplification mechanisms that are, you know, that are just amplifying events. The literature more recently, of course, have, has moved to sort of like models with occasionally binding constraints where you have a lot more nonlinearity. So this is the kind of Bruno Meyer-Sanikov model or here in Christian Murthy models where the financial sector um, you know, is tightly linked to microfinancial activities and where occasional binding constraints can lead to these very sharp downside uh, realizations of GDP growth. And so, um, you know, you, you know, Coronex Simsek is another, and Bianchi, they have all these sort of like macro-financial models where there's a meaningful role for the financial sector where occasionally binding constraints lead to, you know, very sharp amplification of downside risk of GDP. So now, um, in, within these models, you could compute this kind of like growth at risk, right? I mean, these models generate a conditional distribution 
for GDP growth. And within these models, then you can do counterfactual policy analysis. You can put in monetary policy rules or macroprudential policy rules that are going to shift. So, like the 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 uh, distribution of conditional GDP as a function of your policy roles. And I'm going to show you an exercise we did like that in a moment. The other feature that these models are sort of like giving you is this volatility paradox. So typically what happens in the models is that in good times, volatility is low, the price of risk is compressed, leverage is high, but then the economy becomes fragile, a negative shock so like leads to an unwinding, and that can be a very nonlinear feedback effect, and then you have these very sharp downturns in GDP growth. So what I would like to do next is to basically um, now argue that you know the financial stability metric that we should be looking at is what we call GDP at risk. And so the formal definition of GDP at risk is that it is the value at risk of GDP growth at some future horizon. So you could compute it one year, two year, three years into the future. Say you take GDP, so the value at risk of GDP conditional on financial vulnerability. So that's why it's a financial stability metric, right? I mean, you could condition on other things like um, you know, the stance of fiscal policy. And then it wouldn't be a financial stability metric, it would be a fiscal stability metric. So I want to think about financial stability, so I define my metric for financial stability as the value at risk of GDP, say one year in the future, or two years or three years in the future, as a function of financial vulnerabilities. And so the financial vulnerabilities, these are sort of like the state variables that generate the amplification mechanisms in macrofinancial models, right? So leverage, maturity transformation, uh, currency mismatches, the degree of interconnectedness, it sort of like depends on what flavor of macrofinancial linkage you're thinking about, you know, which defines the particular state variables that you want to look at. It could be household credit, corporate credit, et cetera. And um, <clears throat> then, of course, uh, macroprudential and monetary policies can target sort of like the shape of the distribution in a particular manner. So let me, let, me show you, let me show you how we did this within the GFSR. So in one of the analytical chapters, we present estimates of this uh, growth at risk. I'm going to just jump ahead. So, so this is all like a summary of the distribution of growth at risk for global GDP. So this is, this is the, the 95th percentile is the green one, and the 5th percentile is the red chart. Okay, <laughs> and so this is for the global economy. So basically what you can see is, so there are two very important stylized facts. So the first stylized fact is that the upper quantile of the GDP distribution is very constant, right? There's not all that much variation here. While the lower quantile varies a lot. So you have an unconditional GDP distribution that is very, very skewed to the left. And you get that very skewed distribution only when you condition of financial variables. If you condition, say, on lagged GDP or lagged you know, other economic condition variables, you don't get this very asymmetrical distribution. You get the asymmetrical distribution by conditioning on financial variables. 
So that's sort of like the first observation. The second observation is that you know, it's really this financial conditions index, and I will tell you in a moment how we construct that, is really very closely related to the left-hand tail of the, of the GDP distribution, right? And so this is, I mean, of course, this is not a causal statement, right? I mean, this is kind of like a, Granger, a tail Granger causal, you know, statement right now, right? It's, it's a forecasting relationship for the left tail or for the right tail of the distribution. And so intuitively what happens is that like when you think about the distribution of GDP, when, when financial conditions deteriorate, the conditional mean goes down, right? which is what you see here, or the median, right? conditional median goes down. And at the same time, the conditional variance goes up. And so, when the so basically for the upper quantiles, this is offsetting, right? because your conditional mean goes down, conditional variance goes up, so you don't have much of an effect on the upper quantile. But for the lower quantile, you are hit by both the bigger variance and the lower mean. And this is why you get this very asymmetrical shape. So in the data, basically, conditional mean and conditional volatility are very negatively correlated. Now, of course, I mean, this is for the global economy. And this is sort of like the typical picture that you will find for the US, UK, uh, you know, most European countries, Japan, etc. Of course, when you go to commodity-producing countries, you do also have upside risk, right? Because for commodity producers, you know, when you have a commodity boom, I mean, that can lead to, you know, a sudden jump up in GDP. For the typical, so like, advanced uh, economy that is not a commodity producer, you basically, you don't have upside risk. You only have downside risk. And so the intuition is, is like a capacity, you know, it's a, it's a capacity constraint, right? Because you know, even if there's an asset price boom, you know, there's some stock market bubble or something like that, GDP is not going to jump suddenly. It will grow, but it will not jump up. Whereas in the financial crisis, you have these very sharp contractions, right? So capacity can collapse, but it can't suddenly jump. So, so basically, so what we do in this exercise, we construct for, t for 21 economies, 11 advanced economies, and 10 emerging markets, we construct these kind of financial conditions index, which are like principal components sort of of, um, <clears throat> I mean, we use something a little bit more sophisticated than a principal component model. It's, we use a dynamic factor model, but it, it amounts to pretty much the same thing. So there are financial conditions that are aggregating asset price information, credit growth information, and proxies for external global financial conditions. And of course, I mean, here I show you the relationship just for the overall financial conditions index, but you can also look at the information content of subcomponents, right? So leverage, for example, has more information content in the medium term than uh, looking at only asset prices. Um, and so the typical kind of picture that you get is, for example, here we look three years ahead for emerging markets, and we, we condition on leverage. So leverage is particularly informative for the left tail of the distribution. So these are, so what we do, I mean, the particular method that we use, but there are many methods to use. We use a kind of semi-parametric method. So we run quantile regressions for every quantile, right? So these are the quantile coefficients, say, of GDP growth conditioned on lag GDP and on leverage. 
and you can see that leverage has a lot of information content for the left tail of the distribution. And then from these, you know, then we forecast, so like each quantile, and then we fit the distribution function through that. Um, and that gives us this conditional distribution that I showed you earlier. I mean, there are other ways of doing it. I mean, this is one particularly, you know, simple way, and it turns out to be a very robust way. And then, of course, I mean, this is, for example, for leverage. You know, for advanced economies, you also see more, more information here for leverage, but there's also a little bit on the right-hand side. Um, you know, you get these basically conditional distribution functions that I showed you earlier. Um, so so the, the other thing that you can do is to then basically take uh, a, a, a model, right? So you could actually fit uh, a DSG model. So you know you write down some DSG model with microfinancial linkages, and you put in some policy function. And you can basically then ask, okay, you you know you have sort of like alternative policy functions. So here we have a baseline policy rule, and a simple macroprudential policy rule. And in these kind of DSG models, so this is like a particular new Keynesian model that has an amplification mechanism that generates these very sharp downturns in output and GDP. And basically, if you put in a macroprudential policy rule that is optimally conditioning on things like credit to GDP, um, you will find that you're mitigating the downside risk to output and you're mitigating the downside risk in the credit to GDP ratio, right? So this is, you know, one way to illustrate, uh, you know, the application of the notion of GDP at risk to a policy setting where you would want to evaluate alternative policy rules. So basically the alternative policy rules then generate these alternative densities and my proposal basically is, you know, to use GDP at risk as the metric for the macroprudential policymaker, right? So say in the UK here, the Bank of England has a monetary policy committee and it has a financial policy committee. And when you evaluate the performance of the, macro, or the monetary policy committee, the MPC, people look at average inflation and inflation volatility. There was a conference a month ago or so celebrating the 20-year anniversary of the independence of the Bank of England, and that's exactly Ricardo Rees, actually, uh, who's uh, uh, teaching here. Uh, you know, he gave a paper that was saying, oh, let's evaluate the performance of the Bank of England in terms of monetary policy, and he showed inflation performance in terms of average inflation and inflation volatility had increased tremendously relative to the past 200 years, you know, since, since this uh, monetary policy independence or independence of the Bank of England was introduced. So, um, but then when it comes to financial, the, the FPC, you know, people sort of like don't know what is the metric. So how do you measure financial stability? So my proposal is to say it is GDP at risk, i.e. the downside risk of GDP conditional on financial vulnerability. And I would argue that you should evaluate the FPC by checking whether it, you know, in 20 years, I mean, it only started three years ago or so. 
So in 17 years, once you have 20 years of FPC, you should show these plots and ask, did GDP at risk get lower since we have an FPC? I think that is the relevant metric for macroprudential policy. Um, and so, you know, this, this kind of thinking um, does uh, tell you something about the relationship between monetary policy and macroprudential policy as well. So I told you earlier that in the current environment, you know, monetary policy continues to be accommodative. Interest rates are low, but vulnerabilities are building up, or in my language. So like GDP at risk three to five years in the future is getting bigger. And so the standard answer then is to say, well, we should use macroprudential policy in order to mitigate GDP at risk. And um, you know, my, I would urge policymakers to, to make these statements very quantitative, because I think that both monetary policy and macroprudential policy influence today's stance, I mean, today's financial conditions, which influences output gaps and inflation today, but it also has an input on downside risks three to five years out. And that's, that's what we worry about in terms of, of financial stability, right? The, the worry is not so much in the short term. The worries we have is in the medium term. The worry is that leverage is building up globally. And in a monetary policy might be, uh, sorry, macroprudential policy might be sufficient to address these vulnerabilities. But of course, macroprudential policy only targets banks and mortgage markets, basically, right? There are no macroprudential policy tools for the corporate sector. And monetary policy, on the other hand, gets in all, into all of the cracks, right? And so even for central banks that only have an inflation targeting mandate, at some point, of course, downside risk to GDP growth becomes a first order consideration for an inflation targeting central bank, right? That doesn't have an independent financial stability objective. It becomes an inflation uh, objective issue because your downside risk might become so big that you might actually adjust, even if only gradually, your stance on monetary policy. But we're certainly not at that point today. So these were, were my remarks, and I would propose that you um, react or ask some questions. <laughs> yes. That's, uh, I think they're microphones. Um, Uh, Tobias, Nicholas Beale, thank you very much for that really interesting presentation. Um, can I ask whether you're talking about real GDP or real or nominal figures? Because in some cases you were talking nominal, such as the compression of yields. And, you know, if we talk about real GDP, then you may have the rather perverse situation that people will say, oh, well, this recession was fine because... Although there was a big contraction in nominal GDP, a lot of people lost their jobs, inflation was very low, and therefore in real GDP terms, it wasn't quite so bad. So do, do, do we have to choose, and if so, how should we choose in your target? I mean, so we always look at real GDP, which is, you know, we are sort of following what central banks are doing for monetary policy, which is basically to look at real GDP, of course. 
there is the debate about nominal GDP targeting, which is you know putting a particular trade-off between nominal and real values implicitly into the target. But we are more traditional here, and we just look at, at real GDP. Um, you know, so we did this kind of exercise as well for inflation. So when you when you estimate this kind of distribution for inflation, it turns out that financial variables. So the header, so Inflation also has heteroscedasticity. So basically, what is driving this is that heteroscedasticity of conditional GDP is correlated, is driven by financial conditions, and it's correlated with the conditional mean. Right? This is this is generating this very asymmetrical distribution, and it turns out that that's not actually true for inflation. So it's really the real part that is driving that kind of result. So the financial variables don't have a lot of forecasting power for inflation and. This is probably because in equilibrium, the central bank is undoing this effect on inflation. Thanks, Tobias, for an excellent presentation. But I would like to com compliment you on GFSR because I've been following it since its inception. This is the first GFSR, I would say, that Sergeant Lucas would compliment for bringing finance, macro, and stability together. But I have one question. Last two, three days, I was at pensions conferences in Europe, uh, speaking to ECB and European Commission. They are coming up with IORPs and PEPs, PEPs, et cetera. To what extent is your division helping them? Because I feel uh, quite scared about new developments without them looking at macro conditions. No. And I have a small technical comment. You commented on KMV models, et cetera. Why can't we take the newest models of, maybe you already do, of Merton and Breeden, where they are looking at implied walls going forward five, 10 years, evaluating monetary policy and the information content in interest rates and swaps, et cetera, as a proxy rather than just use the KMV model? No. Um, so, so there were two questions. So the first one was about pensions and insurance companies. So the, the fund interacts, so our members are countries. So we interact primarily with authorities. Uh, for the GFSR, we talk a lot to market participants, so we get a lot of intelligence by talking to market participants and to institutions. But the kind of policy advice we give is policy advice to authorities, so to central banks and to finance ministries like treasuries. And so um, we will certainly raise the issues of insurance companies and pension funds. So for example, in this GFSR, we have a subsection on uh, financial stability issues in insurance companies. We had a chapter on insurance companies, I think a year ago or so in the GFSR. So we do quite a bit of work. And so basically the worry for both pension funds and insurance companies is you know, the picture that I showed you earlier, which is that yields are that much lower, and yes, these are nominal yields. So basically, you know, so this is so like a side comment. When you think about the economic frictions, right, the first order of economic friction that we often think about is price stickiness. And I think that's a very important friction. I think there's another very important friction that has received much less uh, prominence, which is nominal return targeting uh, uh, stickiness, right? So you can look at surveys of CFOs. For example, Duke University in the US does these surveys. There are many investor surveys out there. And you can see that nominal return targets, you know, they come down much more slowly than yields are coming down. And so it might be a behavioral thing. It might be an institutional thing. 
But I think if you put that into your DSG model, you're going to have a huge amplification mechanism similar to like price stickiness. Um, and you know, for pension funds, that's a first order thing because somebody somehow decides that the ROE target is still 10 or 12%, but in this yield environment, it's very difficult to do and you have to do all kinds of things uh, to generate that. Um, so the second question uh, was about... Oh yeah, the KMV model, yes, okay. So we use the KMV model just because, um, you know, many market participants, I mean, I don't know exactly what market participants are doing, right? I mean, there's, there's a wide spectrum in sophistication. We, fi we feel that this is sort of like a very popular model. Of course, there are, you know, very, very sophisticated investors that will look at very far into the future forward curves and are doing, you know, running proprietary models, et cetera. But in general, I actually worry quite a bit that many market participants tend to use the same kind of models, you know. I mean, so KMV is one example. Another example is nowadays BlackRock models are used a lot uh, by the buy side. And, you know, if these models don't capture something adequately, that can tilt the whole uh, market risk assessment and markets views. Um, I mean, that's another great topic to work on, actually. It's sort of like, you know, you know, how, how model misperceptions can have aggregate effects. There are some more questions there. Hi, Fernando Monsalista. Thanks for, um, for the excellent, excellent uh, presentation. Uh, inflation, um, very low. Um, you have shown, um, obviously, it's a, it's a key element uh, for uh, market practitioners, obviously, for authorities as well. Um, what are your um, uh, sort of um, your thinking about you know why the inflation is so uh, so low uh, has yep. been persisting uh, yeah. in such a low levels and what are what are your prospects uh, yeah. yeah despite the sort of a very strong um, monetary policy accommodation yeah yeah so I mean there's of course a lot of analysis on this topic so in the so I talked about the GFSR, the Global Financial Stability Report. The IMF also puts out the World Economic Outlook. And there was a chapter in there on inflation. And so they sort of like estimate standard inflation curves that are putting productivity and some measure of slackness into, into uh, the inflation equation. It's like Phillips, Phillips curves, basically. Sophisticated Phillips curves. And basically what you find when you do that is in some countries there's still some slack. But you have to look not just at unemployment gaps, but at sort of like broader measures of unemployment, like involuntary part-time employment and things like that. So there's, in some countries, there's still some slack in terms of, you know, even though you're employed, you would actually like to be full-time employed, but you're only part-time employed. So there's some slack in some countries that accounts for some, you know, depending on the country. Then the second part is productivity. Um, and the third part, you know, which is more difficult to measure, is that, of course, the global sort of like supply of labor keeps increasing. And so this is particularly important for manufacturing. So in manufacturing, for example, in the U.S., manufacturing output has been very constant over the past 30 years. But the number employed of people in this output in manufacturing has just dropped. And productivity increases in manufacturing keep going on, right? I mean, it's not like we, we have seen the end. For example, you know, furnitures are still handmade, 
and soon they will be made by robots. So you know that will be there's a continuous boost to productivity in that sector, and that is coupled with the, with the sort of like effective increase in labor supply in the manufacturing goods market. So across across advanced economies, you see that manufacturing good prices just keep going down. In terms of services, it sort of depends a little bit. So services go up in some areas or are constant in other areas. And then the other important component in inflation uh, metrics, of course, is, is the price of, of housing, right? And so, you know, 10 years ago, that was going up quite a lot. Um, so this is like the homeless equivalent rent or, you know, whatever you have to, to use in order to And you know, at the moment, housing prices are recovering. There, there's you know, when you look at typical housing valuation metrics, you don't see overvaluation at the moment, but you might see that going forward at some point. So this might be another place where inflation might might pick up at some point. But you know, it it is a bit of a puzzle how low it is, and it might well continue to be low. There's one, there's one more question and. Last question back there. Uh, thank you very much for this very insightful talk. Uh, this is Satyaki. Uh, maybe we can say with Basel III completed, uh, the, the, there's now a framework for uh, dealing with risks in the financial sector. But uh, how would you think about dealing with risks in the sovereign sector and the buildup of, say, sovereign debt, and especially with like the banking uh, sovereign nexus, and how, how would you deal with that? Yeah, so I think in the sovereign sector, um, Okay, so so the first thing to note is that you know government debt in the sovereigns among sovereigns keeps going up, and that's not just true in G20 countries. It's also true in emerging markets, and it's true in low-income countries. Okay, so leverage is clearly rising, which is a vulnerability. In terms of Basel III, so basically um, there are two ways to deal with sovereign uh, debt in Basel III. One are the risk weights, and the other one are exposure limits. And Basel III hasn't, has not incorporated so like a, a penalty for, uh, for default risk in sovereigns, which, you know, economically, from an economics point of view, we're at Lund School of Economics, so, you know, you probably should have, uh, you know, risk weights reflect actual risk. Um, but, you know, the politics are difficult. Um, so, and then there are exposure limits, you know, but they don't, you know, it's not clear that they act quite as, as forcefully. Uh, I would just, you know, in terms of Basel III, I would just add here that um, there is an enhancement to Basel III that is in discussion at the moment. And for the past year, the Basel Committee has tried to get a consensus on this enhancement. The enhancement is essentially, it's very closely related to the kind of things that we discussed here. The enhancement is essentially putting a floor under internal risk models, right? So in Basel III, major banks are allowed to use internal models to calculate their risk weights. And the problem in those models is that, you know, it's a model. I mean, you know, if you, any of you ever, you know, estimated uh, a, a somewhat sophisticated empirical model, you know, you can, you have lots of choice. And, um, you know, there is, there is, you know, there is some, uh, you know, pretty convincing evidence that models across banks give vastly different results. And there's also, there's a very nice paper by Federal Reserve economists that looks at some like 
um, syndicated loan portfolios. So they're the same portfolios held on different banks. And then they look at shocks unrelated to this portfolio that are hitting different banks differently. And then they look at what happens to the model weights. And you know, uh, exactly as you expect, they find that you know, the banks that have a, a negative shocks to some other part of the balance sheet suddenly think that their syndicated loan is less risky than it was before they had the shock, unlike the other banks that also hold the portfolio. You know, so, that is sort of like the, so this is why the Basel Committee is saying, well, we should have like a floor. And so the floor that is in debate is somewhere between 70 and 75% of Basel II risk weights, okay? So you basically say, you know, you can have lower risk weights with an internal models approach, but only down to 70%. There's a floor as to how much, you know, the benefit from internal modeling can be. Uh, but there hasn't been consensus on that because there's a differential effect across countries of how costly that is. So the politics uh, are, are difficult. So with that, um, I would like to thank all of you for um, staying with me for an hour. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks for hosting me. And uh, good luck.